following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. author of Hebrews writing to us, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 4, saying, Having become as much superior to angels as the name that he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his, win, his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, unri- of uprightness, or uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, for you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. He's anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This is the word of the Lord. The year was 1956. It was before I was born, but not before some of you were born. If you were alive and you were uh, of age to know what's going on in the world in 1956, you may have heard of something that was going on in East Africa. There was a group of, of roving terrorists, if you will. I don't know if they would have called them that in that day, but that's what they were. A group called the Mau Maus. The Mau Maus were a terroristic, violent group of folks who traveled around in roving bands and left murder and mayhem in their trail. In 1956, on one particular day, the Mau Mau, or a group of these Mau Mau terrorists were, were roaming around with a particular mission. They headed to a village called Lowry. They came to this village, they surrounded the village, and they assaulted those who lived in the village, killing everyone in the village, some 300 people in all. They killed everyone. Every man, every woman, every child. Not three miles away from this little village called Lowry was a school. It was called Rift Valley Academy. Rift Valley Academy was a a private school where missionary children were being educated. Immediately upon leaving the village of Lowry where they had destroyed the entire city and killed everyone, this group of savages headed toward Rift Valley Academy. They came in the darkness and 
from inside the academy, you could see the lights of the torches that they carried coming. You could also hear their, their curses and shouts as they made their way to Rift Valley Academy and surrounded the entire school, cutting off any way of escape for anyone inside and leaving those inside really without any hope. Those inside described the sight that night, the terrorists outside, the lights flickering in the darkness, encircling the little academy and tightening their circle systematically closer and closer to those who were on the inside. They began to advance upon the school and just as they got within reach of their spears being cast through the windows to those inside and busting in the doors, inexplicably something happened. They turned and they left. They filtered away into the darkness of the surrounding woods, running out into the jungle. Word was sent to the army, and the army was fortunately able to come alongside and capture this particular band of rebels and incarcerate them and put them on trial. It wasn't until much later that anyone really understood what happened that night. You see, when the leader of this little band was put on trial and was being interrogated before the court, the judge looked at him and questioned him, saying, On this particular night, did you kill the inhabitants of Lowry? To which he answered, Yes, we did. The judge said, Well then, why did you not complete the mission? Why didn't you attack the school? The leader of the Mau Mau said this, We were on our way to attack and to destroy all the people in the school, and the school as well. But as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords. And we became afraid, and we ran and hid in the woods. That story is one of many like it that captivate the attention of the mind. Because it is an, exa an example of something that we see in the scriptures, but something that apparently still happens on occasions. And that is, the angels of the Lord descend and make themselves known for particular purposes at particular times. I don't know what that little band of terrorists saw that night. But however those angels showed themselves, it was enough to horrify them and send them running terrified into the woods. We began last week looking at this text in Hebrews chapter 1, where the writer of Hebrews is setting out to compare two things. He's comparing the Lord Jesus Christ to the angels. And it's important for us to be able to capture a first century understanding, and in fact, a biblical understanding of angels to understand why the author would even be talking about this subject or why it would be a subject even worth discussing in writing a letter to believers in the first century or to Jewish people who were on the verge of belief or perhaps were early converts in the first century. 
As I mentioned last week, we have a very warped understanding or a very warped concept in the sort of modern developed world of what angels are. Uh, funny little, silly little uh, beings with wings or, or uh, uh, super feminine females who look just to coddle and comfort. But in the Bible, we see uh, angels as horrifying, terrifying creatures that when visible, at least in their natural state, strike fear and terror in the hearts of those who see them. Uh, they don't always appear in their natural state. It's clear that they can appear as men. We see that in the Scriptures too, that angels appear as men and people don't know that they're interacting with angels. And the writers of Scripture even tell us that it's quite possible that we interact with angels unaware on a regular basis. We wouldn't know unless they chose to show themselves, as was the case in 1956 near the Rift Valley Academy. Angels apparently are number in the myriads of myriads, perhaps into the millions, maybe even the billions. We have no sense for the exact number. We just know there's an awful lot of them. We know that they are far more powerful than human beings, that they are intelligent, that they can move with dramatic speed. Thus, they're often pictured with wings. And when people try to capture some concept of them, they are incredible creatures that do incredible things, but largely the work that they do happens unseen. It's only in particular moments, like in 1956, and like in many other occasions like that, where they show themselves for a purpose. Angels are incredible beings. They're unlike anything that we know or anything that we can relate to. When we read the Scriptures and we read biblical authors who have a catch of sight, whether it be in person or in some sort of a vision of angels, or they see like John or, or like a Jeremiah, some vision of heaven, and they see angelic beings in their natural state, they, they are dumbfounded. They have no words to describe it. They use the vocabulary they have, and when we read it, it sounds bizarre, but the reality of the matter is they have, there are no words to describe it, what they look like and what they do. They are phenomenal. But the aim of the author of Hebrews is to teach us that as remarkable, as incredible, as phenomenal are the angels, Jesus is superior in every way. That there is no comparison between Jesus and the angels. He is infinitely greater than one angel or all the angels put together. You say, well, why even bring this up? Why, why is this a matter that requires conversation in a letter that's intentional like this? Well, it's, it's important because the original readers of this particular letter uh, have come out of a, a, a first century Judaism. And in first century Judaism, Jews held angels in very high regard. In some quarters, even to the point of worshiping angels. And what had happened over time, by the time we get to the first century, is that sort of a warped conception of what the biblical picture of angels uh, really was had, had come to play in, in first century Judaism. It had been embellished, and angels had been given a larger role and a larger significance than that for which they were created. They believed all sorts of things about angels that we have no evidence of in Scripture. Some uh, believed that angels acted sort of like a senate or a council uh, which God consulted. Some believe that there were 200 angels that were responsible for controlling the stars and the movements of the planets. Some believe that there was a mighty angel who controlled and took care of the sea. Some believe that there were angels who controlled frost and dew and rain and snow and hail and thunder and lightning and all of the elements. 
There were those who believed that angels were particularly assigned to be wardens of hell and torturers of the damned. There were those who believed in guardian angels who guarded people and angels of death who ushered people out of this world into the next. All sorts of conceptions and belief systems regarding angels in the first century. And I say all of that just to see, just to help you to see that there was this remarkable interest in angels and a remarkable sort of over-elevation of the importance and power of angels to the point of worship. But the most important thing we need to understand about how the first century Jews looked at angels is this, and it's important for our our study of chapter 1 of Hebrews, and that's this. Most Jews had this conception that the Old Covenant was brought to them by angels. That angels were responsible for bringing to them the Old Testament law. And that angels were responsible for not only bringing, but sustaining with them their covenant with God. Uh, They saw angels as mediators of the Old Covenant. They, They associated angels with Moses and Mount Sinai when God brought the law and gave it to His people and made His covenant with them. We see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul writes this to Jews. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place, how? Through angels by an intermediary. The law put in place by angels or through angels. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, in the midst of Stephen's sermon there, he speaks of of his audience as those who received the law as ordained by angels. So there was this connection between the angels and the Old Covenant and the Old Testament law being given. And if there were anything the Jews held in high esteem, it was the law. It was the Old Testament covenant. It was what they anchored their identity in. It was what they, it was what they revered was the law. And so they associated angels with this law, and thus angels were elevated to this high and extreme level. And the author of Hebrews is brilliant. He has an aim here in bringing up the angels. He has a point in making this case right at the outset that Jesus is superior to angels. Because if you're talking to people who are elevating angels because they've associated angels with the message of the Old Covenant, then you're going to need to convince them that Jesus is superior to the angels because in your next movement of your argument, you're going to say, if you listen to the message that the angels brought, you ought to listen even more to the message that Jesus brought. If Jesus is greater than the angels, then His message is greater than theirs as well. And thus He calls Jewish first century people to believe in the new covenant that's brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And that's the purpose of this argument in chapter 1. It seems complicated with seven Old Testament references here that are somewhat vague and veiled and hard for us to grasp on a a clean reading of the text. But all of this is about him pointing out to Jewish believers, Jesus is superior to the angels, and if you revered the message of the Old Covenant, you ought to revere the message that Jesus brings even more. Because he's superior to them and his message is superior as well. Angels are great, but Jesus is greater. He's greater. And the whole of this chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, is just the author listing off for us way after way after way by which he proves Jesus from the Old Testament is greater than the angels. He takes their own scriptures and says to them, let's go to your holy book. 
let's go to your scriptures, the Old Testament, which we none of us disagree about the authority of those texts. Let's go to them and let me show you how they point you to Jesus being greater than the angels. And we saw last week the first way in which he goes about doing that. And that's in uh, verse 4 and, and 5 where he says uh, that Jesus is superior to the angels because the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we walked all the way through this last week that the name that he's talking about there is Son. That Son is the name that Jesus has that is superior to the angels. He is, in fact, the Son of God. All of the Old Testament prophecies that speak of a coming Son of David who's going to inherit the line of David and inherit the throne of David, is going to rescue and redeem Israel, all of those promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ when he's called Son of God. All the Old Testament prophecies that point to a future son become fulfilled in Christ because he has the name, the son. No angel has ever been called the son of God. No angel has a name that's that exalted. No angel is the inheritor of all those promises. Only Jesus fits that description. So he has a name that is superior to theirs. And that brings us to verse 6 and 7, the second point of of a proof that he brings for us. And that's this. Not only does, does Jesus have a name that's superior to the angels, but the angels worship and serve him, not vice versa. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, when we read that text, just leave it up there for a moment, if you will, Ben. When we read that text, we're immediately sort of struck by two questions. At least I am. What is that again about at the beginning of the text? What is that about? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Uh, So we want to know about that. And then we want to know about what is the idea with this firstborn. Now, we talked about the firstborn last week, so I'm not going to belabor the point, except just to remind you, in case you weren't here last week, that when we see this term firstborn in the New Testament... And in the Old Testament, we need to understand what the word actually means. It has nothing to do with time or sequence. It's a word that in every context, and it's original, has to do with rank, authority, inheritance, and position and power. But nothing to do with time or sequence. It's important to know that because when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door or ring your doorbell and you answer, and they want to discuss with you how Jesus is not God... They're going to point you to passages like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And they're going to say, look at this. The Bible here says that Jesus is the firstborn into the world. That means that He was born. He was created. He was born in some sort of a time sequence that He hasn't always been. And they will trick you and they will trip you if you think the English word firstborn captures the idea of time or sequence or has anything to do with being created. But the word means nothing of the sort. There's a word that is completely captured with the idea of power and authority and right to, to an inheritance. We see Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament. You remember the two brothers? Well, one was older and one was younger. But how did God arrange circumstances in that family? Was it that the, it was that the older was going to eventually serve what? The younger. And the younger is the one who's called the firstborn. Even though he wasn't the firstborn, he's the firstborn. Because he's the one who inherits the right to have power and authority and and priority in the family. 
And so when we're talking here, the writer of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as the firstborn into the world. He is saying nothing about him being created, nothing about time or sequence whatsoever. He's saying he's the one who has the right to rule and inherit all that comes from his father. But what about that, that again at the beginning? And again when he brings the firstborn into the world. What is he talking about there? We don't have time to walk through it too much this morning, but I think what he's referring to there is the second coming, the return of Christ. He's saying when Christ returns, when he brings the firstborn into the world again, he's already brought him into the world once, he's going to be bringing him into the world again, and when he does that, let all God's angels worship him. We know that angels have been worshiping Christ forever. We see examples of that in the text, but it's not until the end when he returns and the story is complete and redemption is fully and completely accomplished in all of its various facets and fashions that all of the angels, myriads upon myriads, will fall and worship him in full. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is after here. And that's what the again and the firstborn are all about. But in quoting here in chapter in verse 6, he's taking us back to Psalm 97, verse 7. You recall seven times he takes us back to the Psalms here to make his point. Psalm 97, 7 says this, All worshipers of images will be put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him all you... Now, in our English translation here it says gods with a little g. Um, but if you look at the, at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what would have been accessible to the first century Jew, uh, the word is not translated gods, it's translated angels. And therefore, we have the quote captured the way it is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. But none of that is really the point of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The only point he wants to make here is this. Jesus is superior to the angels because the angels have always worshipped Jesus. And the one who is worshipped is always greater than the one who does the worshipping. Is that fair enough to say? It's a pretty simple point, isn't it? He also quotes Psalm 104.4, which says, He makes His messengers winds, His ministers a flaming fire. Not only do the angels worship Jesus, but they are His ministers. They are His messengers. And just as the, the one who is worshipped is greater than the worshippers, the one who sends the message is greater than the messengers who deliver it. Does that make sense? He makes His messengers wins. The angels are made. Jesus is eternal. We'll talk about that more a little later in the text. But they're His messengers. They're His ministers. He sends them out and they must do His bidding. They must obey Him. Do you remember Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 in the Christmas story? Jesus is born, right? And what do we find immediately upon His birth? And suddenly there was with the angel... A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. At the very birth of Jesus, what are the angels doing? They're worshiping Him. They're worshiping Him. As the second person of Trinity, He's been worshipped in the past by angels. He's worshipped at His birth. He's being worshipped right now. In fact, John's vision of Revelation in chapter 5 of Revelation, beginning in verse 11, John saw this. He said, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels 
numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. What's happening in heaven around the enthroned Lord Jesus Christ? The angels are worshiping Him. They're worshiping Him. Angels don't worship anything except God Himself. And that's what they've always done before the second person of the Trinity. That's what they did when He was born into human flesh. It's what they're doing right now as He sits at the right hand of the Father and it's what they will continue to do forever. Worship Jesus. The Son is the object of worship. They are the subject. They are the, uh, Jesus is the Master. They are His servants. Jesus is the message. They are the messengers. Jesus is superior to the angels. They worship Him. And worship is a massive issue. It's, in fact, why we've gathered in this place. It's to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the reasons that our our worship at times can lack enthusiasm is because we lack a clear vision of exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. We minimize the Lord, and when we minimize Him, our worship suffers severely. The angels have no illusions about who Jesus is. They've known Him in eternity past. They saw the the glory of His human birth. And even right now, they, they gather around the magnificent glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other response when you see Him for who He truly is, but to worship Him with all that you've got. I want to suggest to you this morning, if you're in a season where your life of worship, whether private or corporate when you gather with the body is cold and dead and lifeless. It might be worth looking in the mirror and asking the question, what in my world has eclipsed my view of Jesus? What in my world and experience has somehow made Him look fuzzy and seem fuzzy to me? What's caused me to forget who He is and what He's like? What is it that has eclipsed Him in my mind and in my thoughts and in my passions and in my affections? Because I would almost guarantee you that's at the root of the issue. Something has eclipsed Christ. Jesus has somehow been minimized in your heart and in your life and in your affections. And every time that happens, worship dies. Because the heart of the Christian faith is the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. It's what separates Christianity from Judaism and from Islam and from every cult. They, all, all of these groups will say, well, yeah, Jesus is important in some ways, but He's not to be worshipped. Christianity says absolutely not. Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is worthy of our worship. And so we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is, in fact, the theme of the entire universe. Paul tells us in Philippians... He says, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. On earth, in heavens, under the earth, everywhere, that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Worship is the theme of the universe. It is where the entire universe is going. And one day the entire universe will fall before the Lord Jesus Christ in worship. He deserves worship. He is worthy of worship. He is the only one who deserves and the only one who is worthy of worship. And one day every human being will render Him what is due. The only question that remains to be considered as it pertains to me and you is will we render that worship willingly and joyfully because He's our Savior and our Redeemer? Or will we be forced to our knees to worship Him before we're cast away from His presence into eternal torment? That's the only real question. The question isn't, will men worship Jesus? The question is, when will men worship Jesus? Will it be before it's too late, or will it be after? That's really the only question that's in front of you this morning. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've, you've, you've explained Him away in your mind, you've rejected Him in some way, you're, you're regarding Him with some sort of respect, I would imagine, because you've come into a church unless somebody has forced you to do so against your will. But you've never confessed your sin. You've never repented and turned away from a life of selfish indulgence and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never turned from your rebellion against Him and entrusted your life to Him, trusting in His blood shed on the cross for your sins to save you and that alone. Not your goodness and not your works. You're holding out for some reason. Maybe you think, well, it's not, not that important. Maybe you think, I'm just going to hold my options out here. Listen, you hear it this morning. The angels worship Jesus, and one day you will worship Jesus. You will worship Jesus. The only question is, will it be before or after it's too late? Jesus is superior to the angels in every way. They worship Him. He is the object of their worship. He goes on in verses 8 and 9 to tell us another, another piece of proof, another bit of evidence as he makes the case that Jesus is superior to the angels. Not only does he, do they have a greater name, does he have a greater name than them, not only do they worship and serve him, but get this, the Father, the first person of Trinity, calls him God. That's a pretty strong bit of, of proof. Verses 8 and 9, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this is a fascinating Old Testament text. And the way the author of Hebrews uses it makes no doubt what it is meant by God to be. A clear affirmation by the first person of the Trinity that the second person of the Trinity is equally God. But of the Son second person of the Trinity, He, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, says to Him, Your throne, O what? O God, is forever and ever. God calling God, God. How about that? The Old Testament reference, again, this takes us back to the Psalm. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's an exact quotation nearly. That, that psalm, Psalm 45, was originally written to celebrate the wedding of a mighty king in the line of David. It was a wedding song. You ought to go back and read that if you're thinking about getting married. Maybe you'll sing it in your wedding. 
That's what it was for. But it was a song that celebrated, and it it was a song that was written for this mighty king in the line of David, a Davidic king, to celebrate his wedding. And the psalm, if you track through it, it's the psalmist or the writer uh, addresses the bride and then addresses the groom in this particular psalm. And it's in the address to the groom that this quotation comes. But what the author of Hebrews is really stunned by when he reads Psalm 45 He's stunned by the fact that in the psalm, there is a human king who's referred to as what? As God, right? Isn't that what it says? Your throne, O God, is forever. So, in its original context, a wedding song for a human king of the line of David, this human king is referred to as God. So the author of Hebrews is sort of stunned by that. And he understands that... that That there's a purpose in that. There's an immediate sort of an imagery that sort of captures the idea that this human king who's being celebrated at his wedding rules over his kingdom in ways that are similar in which God rules over the universe in in justice and in mercy and that he rules in, in ways that are righteous and good. But the writer of Hebrews knows that there is no human being that could rightfully be described and fit that description of Psalm 45, 6. So he says God must have had not only a near fulfillment of this, but an ultimate fulfillment yet to come. And that ultimate fulfillment is in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have here is an Old Testament king who is described, of whom it's described, God is his God, and yet he himself is God. Now, that's fascinating. No human being fits that description, right? The only one who fits that description is the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David, the ultimate one who comes from the line of David, the promised Messiah, the promised ultimate Davidic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's clear that the author identifies here that God the Father is the one speaking. Whoever this person is that this author of of Psalm 45 is talking about, whoever this king is, he is absolutely superior to any angel because God has never said to any angel, you're God. But he says that of this king called the Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we find out about Jesus from this psalm and this reference? Well, he tells us some absolutely stunning ways in which this king... Jesus is different than the angels. He tells us that He's enthroned, right? But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Who sits on the throne? Well, it depends on if in your home you call a certain piece of equipment the throne. In that case, everybody sits on the throne. But that's not the throne we're talking about here. Who sits on an actual throne? I just had to wake you up. You were, you were kind of drifting on me there in all of that Old Testament you know, language. A king sits on a throne, right? A king sits on a throne. He's telling us here that the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned. No angel has ever described as sitting on a throne. But the Lord Jesus Christ here is sitting on a throne. They're messengers. Some of them are around God's throne. Some of them are dispatched from God's throne. But they never sit on God's throne. And angels don't rule anything. But here, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, is called God. And He's described to us as one who is enthroned. Not only is He enthroned, but His rule on His throne is an eternal rule. Did you see that? Your throne, O God, is how long? A few years? A couple millennia? 
It's forever and ever. Then not only is He enthroned, but He's enthroned forever. There's no legitimate challengers to His throne, and there never will be. There is no one who is a legitimate rival. There is no one who is a legitimate equal. There is no chance in the universe that He will ever be removed, defeated, replaced on the throne. He will never grow old and die and be replaced by someone else. He's a king who's enthroned forever. Who has no rival. Who has no equal. And his rule is one that's marked by righteousness and joy. There's none who fit that description. Except the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. So it's fitting that the Father would call the Son God. Because indeed He is. Jesus understood this in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. We're one. His opponents clearly understood this in John chapter 5, verse 18. This is what John writes. This is this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself what? Equal with God. His opponents understood what he was saying. They understood that he was claiming to be equal with God. The apostles understood this. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Titus, uh, uh, Paul writes this, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He writes, uh, John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is true God and eternal life. Apostles understood Jesus' deity. And so the consensus is overwhelming. And the testimony of Scripture front to back is clear. Jesus claimed to be God. His opponents understood He claimed to be God. The apostles understood that He was God. And God the Father identified Him as God. What more evidence does somebody need? Of who he is. No angel is God. And no angel ever claimed to be God. One angel had ambitions to be God, and that did not turn out well. He learned in very clear and profound ways how vast is the gulf between an angel and the true God. Only Jesus is the true and eternal God whose kingdom is forever. Verses 10 and 12 tells us another bit of proof here. Not only is He called God by the Father, but He's the eternal Creator. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth at the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Again, which of the angels created the earth? Which of the angels created the heavens? The answer is none. But the Old Testament psalmist tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who laid the foundation of the earth. That means before there was an earth, He was here and He was a part of making it. He says the the heavens are are what? The work of His hands. He he made the heavens. You look up into the stars and the planets and the, the clouds and the skies and the universes as far as the human mind can stretch. And all of it was made by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a... Sort of a reversion back to verses 1 through 4. He made this issue and we talked about it a good bit. He's the creator. The angels are created. 
By the way, this is a quotation from Psalm 102, verse 25 and following. But in pulling this quote, he gives us three more characteristics of Jesus that show us he's superior to angels. He's the creator. We saw that. The heavens were made by him. No angel made these things. Only Jesus. Again, he's eternal. You get that? You laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They perish. But what? Say this part with me. You remain. The heavens and everything that's been made, what's going to happen to those? Gone like that. But what about Jesus? He remains. His years have no end. He's eternal and He's unchanging. Everything you and I know in our experience of life is subject to change and decay. Think about it for a minute. Is there anything, I'm going to give you a second. Is there anything you can think of that is not subject to change or decay? Anything? That brand new car that you buy that's so shiny and pretty when you first get it and everything works perfectly, how long does it take before you're struck with the harsh reality of change and decay? And you have to call Randy Caston or somebody like him to help you because your shiny car that worked beautifully now does not work beautifully. It's decayed. It's changed. Your beautiful home, when it's first built, is just pristine. And all of a sudden, your AC unit goes out. And you're struck with the reality that change and decay happens even there. You look in the mirror at that beautiful, gorgeous body God has given you. Right? And you're struck with the reality. I like that. Somebody has some good self-esteem back there. And you're struck with the reality on a regular basis that change and decay take place. Right? There's wrinkles where there used to not be wrinkles. There's gray things up here that used to not be gray. Right? The eyes that were so bright and perky now have these little bags and things under them like I got right here. You know what I mean? There's folds and different things in different places that just did not be there before, you know? You used to be able to run and jump and pick up heavy things. And now you try to do those things and you hurt for a week. Right? And those are just the fun and silly ways. But you go to the doctor and you get a diagnosis that something is wrong. There's an organ that isn't working anymore and it used to work. There's a system that was functioning and now it's impaired because it's deteriorated and decayed. Everything is subject to change and decay. Our bodies, our things, our cars, everything. Even the universe around us is subject to change and decay. Everything around us changes and decays. But God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is unchanging. And not only is everything naturally decaying, but the Scripture tells us here that one day Jesus is going to help it come to a firm and quick end. Did you catch that? He uses an illustration. He says, think about that, that, old, that old garment, that old piece of clothing that you've been wearing for all these years, and you finally look in the closet and decide, you know what? That joker just can't take it anymore. I'm going to have to retire it. And you roll that sucker up and you throw it out, right? Or your wife tells you you ought to, and so you do, right? That's the illustration that the psalmist uses of what Jesus, the creator of the universe, is going to one day do to the universe. He's going to roll it up like a worn-out garment and put an end to it. The 
heavens are the work of your hands. They'll wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation chapter 6, verse 11. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. There is no category for our minds that can imagine what it's going to look like when the Lord Jesus, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, rolls it up like a scroll and throws it out and creates a new heaven and a new earth. But the point here is this. Everything we know will one day be gone, but the Lord Jesus remains unchanged forever. No angel can that be said of. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, We've already sort of touched on this issue. He is the enthroned king who rules over all. To which of the angels has he, again the Father speaking, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? What is the answer to that question? None. He's never said that to an angel. There is no angel that is enthroned at the right hand of God sharing the ruling authority from His throne with Him. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the enthroned King who rules over all. And one day, everything in the universe will finally and ultimately be subjected to Him. And at His name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's Lord forever. That's not the destiny of angels. The destiny of angels is told to us right here. They're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Who are those to inherit salvation? Hey, swivel your head and look around. That's you. That's me. What do angels do? Are they destined for a throne? No. Angels are ministering spirits who the Lord dispatches to help you and to help me. Did you know that? Did you know that God sends His angels to help you inherit your salvation? That there are enemies to your soul out there that would seek to to undercut and destroy the work of God in your life. And God uses particularly the angels to dispatch into your world to help you get to the finish line secure. There's something pretty awesome about that, isn't it? You don't see them. You largely don't perceive their presence. But that's what they do right now. They minister to you. They help you. They do spiritual battle on your behalf. They protect you in ways you'll never know. And perhaps in some ways, like the folks inside that little Rift Valley Academy in 1956 East Asia, they're doing things in your life that you don't have any idea that they're doing. Oh, angels are real, and they're incredible, and they're an important part of God's work in your life. But they're not to be our concern. Jesus is. Because He's superior to them in every way. In every way. He sends them to do His work. They're His messengers, His ministers. 
And Jesus deserves all praise. I want to close with this. In Acts chapter 2, you might remember Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, the very first New Testament sermon, if you will. In that sermon, beginning in verse 32, he's gone through the whole background on who Jesus is, and he says this after he talks about Jesus' death. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen. The writer of Hebrews would want you to know and to hear this morning that Jesus Christ is everything. That there is no one and nothing superior to Him. That He is the one who was born into human flesh in Bethlehem, who lived a perfect life, who who gave His own life on a cross where He submitted to torture and a brutal death, shedding His own blood, paying the price for your sin and mine. And it's our sin, our actions, that crucified Him. This One who's superior to the angels. And this very One stands before the doorstep of your world and your life today, and He says this, You have no hope because you're a rebel apart from Me, except that you trust yourself to me. That you believe in me. That you trust that my sacrifice on your behalf is sufficient to cover your sin and give you a fresh start. That you turn from your life of selfish indulgence and living your own way and submit yourself to me and to my rule. And if you'll do that, I'll wipe the slate clean. I'll forgive your every sin. I will give you a fresh start in a new life. I will save your very soul. And I will be to you, your Lord, and your God, and your Redeemer forever. I plead with you this morning, hear those words from the Lord. Believe upon Him. Entrust your life to Him. Abandon every pursuit of trying to be righteous on your own. And entrust your life to Jesus. He is superior to everything. He is God. And He's offering you the world. Won't you receive Him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can't say enough about You. We can't even begin to capture, even with our humble efforts, how magnificent You truly are. We thank You for this dear author who wrote this letter. We thank You for his concern that we know your absolute magnificence magnificence and power and authority and might, your ultimate superiority over everything and everyone and every created thing, including the magnificent angels. But His aim in all of this is that we might see You for who You are, God in human flesh. God come to redeem us. God who has come near to us to save us. And that in seeing that, we might be drawn to You and fall on our face before You in worship and praise and submission and faith. I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, 
that you would open the eyes of someone here this morning who hasn't seen you for who you are. Draw them to yourself that they might believe upon you. And for those who already know you, Lord, that may you be magnified in their eyes. For those in whose lives their vision of you has been eclipsed by other cares and concerns, Lord, we pray that you would blast those things away and that they might see you afresh and anew and be drawn to you.